And welcome to From the Hawk's Nest. I'm your host, Matt Bergman. Today, my guest is Father John Ostick. Father John entered the Franciscan Minor Seminary in 1936 for four years of high school and two years of college. He later spent four years studying theology at St. Joseph's Seminary in Teutopolis and was ordained to the priesthood in 1949. He holds a bachelor's degree in philosophy and education and a master's and a doctorate in biology. Over the course of his long career, he has served as a chaplain at the Walter Reed Medical Center in Washington, D.C., was a professor of biology for more than 20 years at Quincy University, served as the chair of the Public Works Commission for the city of Quincy, has written over 500 articles and conducted research on the ecology of the Mississippi River and the Alaskan blackfish. In addition to all of his work, Father John was a senior Olympics bowler until the early 90s, his early 90s, let me clarify that, uh, and he earned 36 medals over those years. In today's episode, Father John will share with us some of his many adventures that he's had over the course of his life. Father John, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm glad to do this. You have, I, I, mine is a little unique insofar as most priests do not become university professors. And I had a wide variety of things that it, it helped me. Uh, at least it gave me time to travel so much that I have visited all 50 states and 10 to 12 different countries. Wow. To gather material, to be, give lectures and speeches. Uh, so, yes, I have and I had an, a wonderful opportunity that I would not have had I, elsewise. A definite adventure. And you've done, obviously, some amazing things over the course of your life. Let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> uh, May, you are the oldest of seven children and raised on a farm in Nebraska during the Great Depression and the I'll Dust Bowl. I'll correct you. Oldest of ten. Oldest of ten. Oh, yes. my. <laughs> and Five you, sisters, five brothers. Through all that, you watched your parents face many difficulties. How did growing up in that era prepare you for the priesthood? The, one of the... The greatest things it did for me, it, it gave me impetus to get out of the Dust Bowl. Uh, this was tragic. The Dust Bowl brought poverty, real hunger, and real lack of anything to do that would be successful. And uh, you want out. Yeah. So... I, yes, I did want to be a doctor, medical doctor, or a priest, but the impetus there was get out of here. And you certainly did that with all your adventures. Tell me about your role as a gardener on the side and, and how that led to your teaching biology for years. Well, in the seminary those years, in 1942 or 41, we were we entered the Second World War, and getting produce, garden produce, was very difficult. You had uh, tickets. You could only buy what the ticket allowed you to buy. And so in the seminary, we had at that point in theology 120, 120 people to feed every day, 100 students and 20 faculty. And somehow or other, you got to raise a big garden. So for that number of people uh, to feed, 
I raised that I was chief of the garden. Uh, I had six or eight other friars working with me to produce as much as we possibly could over an acre and a half of garden. Now, example, that meant 800 tomato plants every year. And a car volume. It took a bushel of tomatoes to feed one uh, meal. That's crazy. Potatoes or things like this. So, and leaf lettuce, it took three bushels, one meal. So it takes a big patch of lettuce to raise that. Absolutely. So yes, that was a that was free time. That was not study time. In the Second World War. We uh, seminarians were not subject to immediate entry into the military. They, they could not draft us because they, they told us, we can get enough soldiers and sailors. That's not the issue. We can't get enough chaplains. So reduce your study periods as much as possible. So we studied 12 months a year in those years. And I, it helped me knock out one year of study to get to be a priest. And that's how you ended up then uh, working at Walter Reed, right? Well, when, uh, in the 1950s, when I was asked to get a doctor's degree at Catholic University, uh, the job was, they needed a chaplain too. They had two full-time chaplains, Catholic chaplains, and I was the auxiliary chaplain, and I insisted on drawing morning duty. So the morning patrol, morning patrol was mine from, four th- from 5 o'clock till 8, usually every day. I took whatever, whatever. The hospital at that time, Walter Reed Army Mountain Hospital, had 2,000 patients. Wow. And it's the top uh, army hospital, so we had we had the tough cases. I'm sure we we had a lot. And remember, that's the 1950s. You remember then that there was very little we could do with cancer. The only thing we could do was operate. And I'll tell you, when those young soldiers are dying of cancer. It's not a happy situation. Yeah. Well, let's take a brief break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more with Father John and and talk about teaching and, and research on the Mississippi. So stay with us. You're listening to From the Hawk's Nest. QU Hawk fans never have to miss a game. QU Hawk games are live and on demand at the GLVC Sports Network, completely free of charge. To watch a game, visit QUHawks.com, click on the Media tab, then select the GLVC Sports Network. The GLVC Sports Network is available on both your desktop and mobile devices, as well as four over-the-top platforms, including Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Android TV, and Apple TV. For game schedules and the latest news, visit QUHawks.com and follow Quincy University Hawks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Welcome back to From the Hawk's Nest. Today we are chatting with 
99-year-old Father John Ostick, or you will be 99 when people finally listen to this. Uh, and uh, Father John has done a number of things in his career, and um, we'd be here all day if we mentioned all of them. Uh, but most notably, uh, for us at least, he is a beloved QU professor of biology. Father John, what is it that you loved about teaching students? I wanted to help students be great people and great in their careers. Uh, I have a, a unique with medicine for all of my life, but as a priest, it could never be a medical doctor at that time. Now, now they can. So, I, from my, my experience, when you step at the bedside of a sick person, you have to translate symptoms to what is the disease. You have to come at it from different angles, just like you do in science, to come at it and make sure that you got it. If you go to only one path, you're going to make errors. You have to take at least two paths and find out what that disease is and then know what can you do about it. In those days, as I told you, the cancer in the 1950s, the only thing we could do was surgery. Look what we got now. The differences. Yes, that's because I wanted some of those people to know and feel we've got to find out what the reality is behind those symptoms and what can we do with that reality. Now, I was on the some of the early stuff, not so much in cancer, but heart surgery. We operated on blue babies. I don't know if you know other terms. Sure. When a child is born, there, they, there is an opening between the two ventricles that is through the stages in utero that it doesn't make any difference. When they come out and have to breathe, that space has to close so that the Blood from the two ventricles is absolutely separate. It sometimes does not close accurately. And so that ends up in a blue baby. That, that the uh, blood is not oxygenated mm-hmm. the way it should be. We had to go in and on, work on the babies. Wow. We had our surgical team, doctors, nurses, all the techs, spend three months on dogs, the same size as a baby. So we had the, the technique down. After the end of that technique, we this was in late 1950s, so I want to say 58 or 59, somewhere in there. We didn't lose a baby for a year. Wow. We saved them. And, of course, there are many doctors out there today that oh. you, ta- you taught here at QU. Yeah. And yeah. that are doing things Dr. just like Selby, that. Dr. Yes. One of them, for an example, is an ophthalmologic surgeon in the state of Michigan. He's the top, one of the top surgeons in ophthalmology in Michigan. Wow. Selby heads up, uh, Dr. Selby heads up one of the granting organizations in Washington, D.C. Tarkin is a professor of medicine in Minnesota. Uh, You know, we got them all over. And you were influential in their lives. 
uh, because of because of that teaching back at QU. I'm, I'm I'm saying, I don't care what you look like, man, woman, big, small, whatever. When you're a doctor, you are responsible for doing the job right. I don't care what you look like. I care what you do. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the Mississippi. And you, you've had a lot of involvement in the Mississippi over the years, including a, a famous QU boat that was uh, once yes. a vessel for conducting research. Uh, and you were also involved in a lot of things locally to help the Mississippi. So talk to us about that. Uh, our research. Well, it's an interesting thing that along the upper Mississippi, which the, the upper and lower, the dividing point is Carroll, Illinois. So we're in the upper. And in the upper, you have a whole series of dams so that the water can uh, be a channel of nine foot as their minimum because the boats here ship at a nine foot of draft, the, the commercial boat. Mm-hmm. Well, we have no other major institutions along the river, upper Mississippi River. It's only above small colleges, so to speak. So, but we got interested. We followed up what was done before. I got talking and got a uh, boat, a 37-foot uh, boat with dual outboard motors. And it's a houseboat. So we could put instruments and everything aboard boat and go do the search. At that time, there was a factory manufacturing cardboard here. And they dumped a bunch. They used $4 million, million gallons of water a day in the process of making this paper. They dumped their stuff in the river. And I says, we had a simple sampling of a three-gallon pail cut with the bottom out, and then replace that with a screen. So you pour the water through, and what can't get through the screen, that's your stuff for examining what you got. So I would go, I'd go down there below where they put their exhaust into the river and put a three gallons of water in that pail, and no water would go through the screen. Oh, my. There was that much fiber that was exhausted uh, out through their pipes. Well, I got a hold of the, I, I went to the company. It says, look, I'll do the research. I'll tell you what, what's there. And they said, okay, do it, but you can't publish it. <laughs> and that was, that was a red flag real fast. Yeah. I said, look, you're talking to a university, and you can't make that restriction on a university. You cannot do it legally. So they left me in the drag. They did. They wouldn't do anything. So then I called the chief of uh, the Corps of Engineers, the station in Chicago, the chief. I says, look, here's what I'm finding. Can you help? The man came down here himself. And I took him out on the river and did this. He, he was kind of doubtful. He thought I was expressing it. I said, I'll show you. And I showed it right in front of him. 
And he just shook his head. I just, he says, you're right. we got to do something. So he, using the force of the United States government office, of, he called the plant in, it was based in Michigan, I think. Suddenly, there were nine people out of that plant come also down here to Quincy. What can we do? How can we help? <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> Funny it works that way, yes. But the Corps of Engineers supported us, and to their benefit, the company took the findings and actually really did the job. They cleaned it up really well. You could hold it and it looked like pure water. That's great. And uh, they reduced from 4 million gallons a day to 1 million gallons a day. Holy cow. Oh, so there was a lots of benefits. So there's a case where we had to fight a little bit, but we got the job done. You know, you've done so many amazing things during your lifetime. And, and, and uh, moving forward now to recently, you are now working on a book uh, where you're writing some short stories. Uh, tell us a little bit about the bo- book and why you think it's important. It's called Letters to Emma. My family, I, I'm the eldest of 10. I have 47 nieces and nephews who are married with children. When we have a family reunion, we, it, we expect 130 people at least. Which you're Respect- used to. Pardon? You're used to that from the friary days. Yes, <laughs> that, that's true. But it's also, we're spread out literally from coast to coast, Maryland to California to Oregon to Washington, Texas to Minnesota, Michigan. We're scattered all over. And my nieces especially are on my case saying, You've got some interesting things, and they all look forward for what I have to say. And so we want you to write your autobiography. I resisted up until this year. (laughs) But so I had designed a style of writing of my 500 articles. If you look at them, most of them are 100 to 150 words. I refrain from length because you won't read it. The reader will read the headline, first paragraph, and that's it. In the newspaper, you read maybe one article a day. You don't read the whole paper. So I'm saying, why write it if you don't read it? So I, I am writing this book with the title Letters to Emma. Emma was uh, a 19, uh, 2015, was seven months old. In our family reunion there, I held little Emma. She was the youngest. I was the oldest. Everybody wanted a picture. <laughs> and she was laughing. She was having a great time. And I said, But I didn't talk out loud. I said, Emma, suppose it's year 2100. You are now 85 years old. And I've got a question. What sort of life did you have? That scared the hell out of me. Because look at what happened. 
It's that pandemic. Look at all the other stuff that's going on. What is that kid's, what are, what are, the, what are the prospects for her? So that's what I'm writing, letters to Emma. She's representing that generation right. just being born. And uh, the whole idea is, I think I've got some conclusions that I can make that ought to be considered. And that's what I'm writing. I make one incident, one page. Every page is a story by itself. And my nieces are going through my photos. I have several thousand Kodachromes. They're picking out appropriate. One side, as you have the open book, will be written. The other side is a picture. Well, we look forward to, uh, to reading that, hopefully someday soon. Yes, I hope, to, I hope to do it before I cash out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we hope that's a ways down the road, and, uh, um, and we just thank you for all, all that you've done for Quincy University and, and, this, and the community of Quincy and, and, and the world, really. I thank you, yes, uh, because I, I have to admit, uh, I, I wasn't just interested in being a simple parish priest. It's not a bad, but I think, I say, I went through some pretty hellish things in my life, and uh, I, I, I think I can make some conclusions that I would say will help those people. Absolutely. And that's my intent. Well, Father John, thank you so much for being our thank guest you. today. You're welcome. Glad to do it. And be sure to tune in next time for another episode of From the Hawk's Nest, where we talk to faculty, staff, students, friars, and alumni, and hear their story about Quincy University. I'm Matt Bergman, and it's always a great day to be a hawk. Hawk.